as you are turning with me this morning to the book of Hosea, chapter 4, I'd like to ask you to consider a question, a question that actually comes from the book of Psalms. In Psalm 130, verse 3, the psalmist asks, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If God were to count every one of your sins, if He marked down every thoughtless deed, every errant word, every impure thought that floated through your mind, and He wrote them all down and delivered them as an indictment against you, what response would you have? Well, ultimately, the reality is that None of us in this room could utter a single word. No one could answer him back. No one could provide any credible excuse because the Lord would be absolutely right and just in his indictment of us. And so as we consider this text in Hosea chapter 4 today, I want this question, the question of Psalm 130, I want that question to linger in your minds. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities... O Lord, who could stand? This is a weighty question, and it's one that no one is exempted from. And so then, with this question lingering in the air, let us see in Hosea what this marking of iniquities, what this bringing of a charge looks like. I would ask this morning that if you are able, that you stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God as we look at Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. There we read, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying Killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Now let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity. And it shall be like people like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry but not increase. Because they have ceased obeying the Lord. Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. 
They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills under oaks, poplars, and terebinths because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. You may be seated. Let's once again go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord, we are once again grateful for the opportunity to sing your praises, to hear your word. We are grateful especially for this warning that the prophet Hosea delivers to Israel. I pray, Lord, that we would be wise and that we would heed this warning ourselves. That we would evaluate, Lord, whether or not we may be guilty of the same things that Israel was guilty of. And if it is found that we are, that we would quickly repent and turn in faithful obedience to you, O God. Lord, I pray that you would prevent my mouth from stumbling this morning, that you would prevent error from crossing my lips, and that you would enable us, would enable us to hear and understand your word, for in it you yourself are revealed. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, what we have just read in Hosea chapter 4 constitutes the Lord's charge against his people. The focus in the book has shifted here in chapter 4 from the example of Hosea and his wife that we read about in the first three chapters of the book to the real point that God has intended all along for the people to see. And that is that their adulterous actions have broken covenant with him. Their sins are the equivalent of adultery. And so, as we read here in verses 1 through 3, we see first that an indictment is delivered. An indictment is delivered. Here, the Lord formally announces the charges that He will be bringing against His people. Now, these are going to be fleshed out in greater detail as we go on throughout the chapter and throughout the book of Hosea. But in these first few verses, we see the basic scope of the Lord's grievance with his people. We're told first that there are three things that they lack. Three things that they have failed to do, followed by five sins that they have committed. And as the Lord begins to bring these charges against his people, I believe that we ought to be listening very carefully. Because the things that these people were guilty of in Hosea's day, they are not foreign to us. It's easy for us, I think, sometimes to build a a wall of separation between Israel's sins and our sins, to think somehow that, that the idolatry of Israel consisted only in some mystical, cultic, sacrificial practices that we are far too civilized to ever repeat. But Hosea does not let us off the hook so easily. The primary crimes that the people are guilty of here, that, that the Lord indicts them for, are a lack of truth, a lack of mercy, and a lack of the knowledge of God. And there's much that we could say about each and every one of these sins. 
In Israel, lying was rampant. People could not be trusted. And the reason they couldn't be trusted was because they were seeking their own ends. If it was to your advantage to lie to someone, then so be it. God had warned them about this in His law, but they paid no regard. They were supposed to be a people of integrity, a people of honesty, but they weren't. They could not be trusted. There is no mercy to be found. Everyone was so self-centered that the needs of others were seldom addressed. We see this very clearly as you fast forward several hundred years and Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan that that lays bare the fact that these people have no mercy. They're self-centered. And what these people thought that they knew about God was only a distorted and disfigured effigy. The people had no real knowledge of God. And that's what we find at the center of this text in these indictments is the fact that that the people lacked a knowledge of God. And from that lack of knowledge, all these other things flowed. This false knowledge of God created a God in the minds of Israel that was unworthy of praise. And so they ceased to praise Him as He demanded because they didn't know Him. This false knowledge prevented them from trembling before the God of majesty that was enthroned in glory. In short, the people had too high a view of themselves and too low a view of God. That's what these things result from. If you think too highly of yourself, what are you going to do? You're going to lie and cheat and steal to get ahead. You're going to step over whoever you have to step over to get where you need to go because you think too highly of yourself. So no truth, no mercy results in or comes from too high a view of yourself. A lack of knowledge of God is too low a view of God. And from these things, their sins stem. I would contend that nothing is different in our day. Dishonesty is rampant. And in fact, it's not just that dishonesty is so rampant or that people are deceitful, but in fact, in our day, truth itself is no longer seen as a virtue. We are said to be living in a post-truth society because truth is seen as something that's constraining. Truth is limiting. Truth keeps us from doing what we really want to do. And so people today choose to live their own truths, they say, which in itself is a misnomer. Because how can you live your own truth? If it's truth only for you, then it's not truth at all. And yet that's what people choose to attempt to live today. Saying, well, this is true for me, even if it's not true for nobody else, then it's not true. You ought not pursue it. But we refuse to be bound by the constraints of truth. We take individual liberty to its unhealthy extreme, living however we want and calling it my truth. We also, I believe, lack mercy today. If you don't believe me on this point, then I would challenge you to log on to Facebook for about five minutes and you'll see just how much mercy there is to be found in the world or or bring up a conversation with your family about politics. The reality is we become so self-centered that if anyone doesn't agree with us 100%, well, then we label them as an enemy and we treat them as such. We have no time for them. There's no room for disagreement because we are so convinced that we are right That we can't tolerate another perspective. We become callous to the suffering of others around us. If it doesn't affect us personally, then we don't really care. So be it. 
We don't see other people as individuals made in the image of God, loved by God, created and crafted by Him. We see them instead as either enemies or allies, pawns to be used to advance our own agenda, to satisfy our own self-centeredness, and to be discarded if they're of no use to us. So we see that these things are true in our day as well. Finally, in this indictment, the Lord says that there is no knowledge of God. What does our society today know of God? Most people, it's true, will claim to believe in God. Most people that you ask will say, yes, I believe in God. Polls have shown that throughout our society, people will claim to believe in God. But what God do they believe in? Well, typically it's a God who exists to make them happy to give them what they want and to make their lives better. Or perhaps they may believe in a God that just picks on them. They're always the victim in their own story because this cosmic bully is waging war against them, so nothing ever works out to their good because God is against them. Or they may believe in a God who's just the opposite, a God who would never punish, who would never judge, never condemn anyone for disregarding His Word because... After all, God is love, and He tells us not to judge, so why should He? These false ideas are not the God of Scriptures. These are demonic idols. And yet, these poor representations of God are being worshipped and being proclaimed right now. In churches all across this nation that look just like this one, people have been singing songs, they have been bowing their heads in prayer, but they have been praying to these false ideas of God because they do not know the true God of Scriptures. They don't know the difference because they don't know His Word. The God of Scripture is glorious beyond all comprehension. His majesty is so overwhelming that we could not see Him in our flesh and live And that's not because he's mean, it's not because he's a bully, it's not because he just delights to strike us dead. It's because he is so incomprehensibly glorious and beautiful that we could not tolerate it in our flesh. He is so majestic that the angels who were created in perfection, whose only job from ages past has been to encircle his throne singing, holy, 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 they dare not look at him in his perfection. They cover their faces with their wings. This is the God that spoke the world into being by the word of his power. And then he formed man out of the dust of the earth. And he breathed into man the breath of life. And he established man as regent, as as steward over his creation. And then when man rebelled against him, he still loved man enough to send his son in all his Glorious perfection to endure God's wrath on our behalf so that we could be restored to Him. And one day He will fully restore all of creation to its former glory and He will judge rightly and perfectly all things and He's going to rule over it forever. That is the God of Scriptures. But is that what our society thinks of God? Is that what you think of God? In what way is our culture any better than Israel in these regards? I would say that we are not in any way. 
In fact, I believe that we are even more culpable because there is a Bible in every home. There is a church on every corner. We do not lack a knowledge of God today because of lack of opportunity. Whatever is deficient in our knowledge of God today is only due to the fact that we don't consider him worthy of knowing. And so we do not put the time and energy investing in knowing this God that we claim to love, that we sing about. And so then this indictment captures us in its net. Do not think that just because Hosea spoke these words to Israel thousands of years ago, that we are any less guilty today. Folks, this, this is not here for us as a history lesson. This is here for us as a warning. This is not here just for us to, to look at and say, well, that's interesting. This is here for us to listen and heed and repent if necessary. So Hosea mentions the three things that they lack, but he's not done yet. He goes on to list even more sins that they commit. He, he lists five sins, swearing, lying, killing, stealing, and committing adultery. These sins comprised five of the Ten Commandments. Remember, the whole law is summed up in the two, love God and love people. The vertical, as it regards God. The horizontal, as it regards other people. These five sins here, the, the horizontal sins, the sins against others that these people have committed. God says that they break all boundaries. There's nothing that's restrained. They, they disregard it all. And as a result, he says, all of creation is going to suffer. The land itself, the animals, the birds of the heavens, even, he says, the fish of the sea are going to be taken away because of man's sin. Showing that God's judgment here of his people is cosmic in its scope. It is cosmically comprehensive. Affecting all mankind, all the land, all the creatures of the land. And so we see in just these first three verses that God's indictment is delivered. And the question still lingers, who can stand? In the next section, verses 4 through 10, we see that ignorance leads to destruction. In verse 6, again, I believe the key to this whole passage, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The primary targets of this section these accusations, these indictments are the priests. As the spiritual liaison between the people and God, the priests were tasked with offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. But more than that, their job was also to teach the people what God expected from them. The sacrifices themselves were supposed to be instructive to show the people the extent to which their sins were an offense against God. But this clearly wasn't happening. The priests had grown lazy. They were neglecting the knowledge of God that they possessed. And they were failing to teach the people. And so because the people lack knowledge, because of their ignorance, they were going to be destroyed. And the priests were the ones to blame. We've already seen how this lack of knowledge manifests itself today. Ignorance of God is a societal epidemic. And I confess to you this morning that I feel personally this weight. As your pastor, first let me say, I'm not called to be your priest. We have only one priest who mediates between God and man. 
But I am called to proclaim to you the knowledge of God. I am, I am called to reveal to you who God is through His Word. And He has revealed Himself in His Word. In this text that we are looking at today, God is revealing Himself. God is showing something of Himself to us. And it's my job to make sure that I help you to see it rightly. I feel the weight of this indictment. I feel the, the importance of this. Because we cannot be flippant about our knowledge of God. A.W. Tozer said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he is absolutely right. Our knowledge of God is the basis for how we act, how we speak, how we worship, how we treat one another. It all begins with what we think about God. What does James say? We curse people. With our mouths that God loves, that God fashioned, that God made in His own image. Image bearers of God. We curse them, we mock them, we belittle them, we count them as worthless. Brothers and sisters, we would not do that if we had a high enough image of God because they are made in His image. We come together at church, we stand and we stand silent as a stone while His praises are being sung. What does that reflect about what we think about God that we can't even bother to open our mouths and sing His praises when He demands that we do so? So what we think about God matters because it affects everything that we do. It affects everything that we say. That's why we have to be careful about what books we read, what pastors we listen to, what beliefs we embrace Because everything that doesn't line up with Scripture becomes a distortion of God in our minds. And if our knowledge of God is deficient, according to Hosea, it will lead to destruction. The consequences could not be any more significant. And so I ask you again, do you believe in God as He has revealed Himself in the Bible? If you do not, then you are in grave danger this morning. Do not say, well, the God that I believe in wouldn't do those things. Yes, He would. He said so in His Word. Do not say, that's not the God I choose to worship, because you're not worshiping then the God of the Bible. You're not worshiping the God that has the power to save you. Ignorance of who God is leads to destruction. In the last few verses of this text, we see that immorality leads to ruin. Now, these verses are actually quite fascinating when you dig into the linguistics here because what the prophet is doing is he's forming a proverb. The the, uh, first line, verse 11, and the last line of verse 14, when taken together, actually form a whole proverb. If you put those lines together, it would read something like this. Prostitution, wine, and new wine take away the heart, and a people without understanding come to ruin. Dwayne Garrett, who's a Hebrew professor at Southern Seminary, suggests that this was likely a common proverb that the people would have been familiar with. And Hosea takes this proverb and he splits it in half and he sticks the indictment against the people right in the middle of it to show them that they have become a living embodiment of this proverb. That prostitution or sexual immorality, that that wine and new wine, that these things will lead to ruin. And here's how the people are living this out. 
Here's how the people are manifesting this to be true with their actions. Drunkenness, sexual immorality, they're going to lead to ruin for the people. And notice that the pursuit of these fleshly desires have led them to immorality. Sometimes we think it's the other way around. We think that if you pursue idolatry, that if you go worshiping false gods, that you'll end up doing these other things. But Hosea says that's not the case. He says the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray. And they have played the harlot against their God. It's the immorality, the sexual immorality that has come first that's led them into idolatry. So this immorality is going to be what leads them to ruin. Time doesn't permit us to go into all the ways that our society has likewise become a living embodiment of this proverb. I don't think I have to try too hard to convince you that this is true, that all kinds of immorality is rampant in our society, and we are hurtling headlong toward ruin if it continues unchecked. When we pursue the immoral desires of flesh, it will inevitably bring us to ruin. And so what then should the response be to the charges that the Lord brings against His people here? Well, quite simply, Israel needs to agree with the Lord that these charges are correct and repent. You see, it's actually grace toward these people that the Lord delivers this indictment by the mouth of His prophet because now the people have the opportunity to see their sin and to repent. Now that they have been warned, they have opportunity. However, if they do not repent, though, they stand doubly condemned because now they know, now it's been made clear to them And not only are they guilty of their sins, they're guilty of rejecting now the call to repentance. Furthermore, this text not only demands a response from Israel, it demands a response from us. How will we respond to this text? Will we agree that we are guilty of great sin against God? Will we agree that we have rejected truth, that we have rejected mercy, and that we have a lack of knowledge about God, will we agree with the Lord? Will we repent? Will we remain stubborn? Remember the question that we asked at the beginning from Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? That question has lingered in the air over these indictments. If the Lord counts all these sins against His people... What hope could they have? As he reads them off, all they can say is, yes, we are guilty. Yes, we are guilty. And these are terrible sins. They deserve swift and brutal retribution. What hope can they have? What hope can we have? Fortunately, though, when we look at the psalm, there is an answer in the very next verse. In verse 4, the psalmist writes, But with you... There is forgiveness that you may be feared. The Lord has every right to mark every one of our sins against us, to list them all down from beginning to end, every word, thought, and deed, and to present them as an indictment against us. He has every right to do so, sealing our condemnation. But with Him, the psalmist says, there is forgiveness. How can there be forgiveness 
in the face of such heinous offenses against him. Remember, it begins with a right knowledge of God. And who is responsible for providing that knowledge? Well, Hosea says it's the priest. They're the ones that have failed in that regard. They're the ones that have failed to reveal God to his people. And so what do the people need? The people need a better priest. And so what does God do to solve this problem? Well, he sends his own son to be our great high priest. To fully reveal the knowledge of God to the people. What does John say as he introduces Jesus to us? In John chapter 1 he says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is what Jesus has come to do. He has come to impart perfect knowledge about God to us. He has come to reveal God fully to us. If a lack of knowledge leads to destruction, then we can avoid that destruction by coming to know God through Christ. He's the one that makes Him known. He's the one that reveals Him to us. He is the great high priest who fully reveals the Father to His people so that they can no longer say that they lack knowledge of God. Not only that, if immorality leads to ruin, as Hosea says it does here, well then we can avoid that ruin by trusting in Him who knew no sin, who knew no immorality, and His righteousness can be imputed to us so that we need not experience that ruin. What God's people always needed was a better priest. And God supplied that to them in Christ. He has supplied that need for us in Christ so that we can be forgiven. Now the question that we asked earlier ends up being flipped on its head. Compare the question of Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Compare that to the one asked by Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 through 34. Paul there asks, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? So now it is no longer who shall stand. It is now who will bring any charge. Who can bring a charge? In Hosea, it's God that brings the charge against His people. And rightfully so. But in Christ, who has revealed God to us, who bore God's wrath for our sins, who endured the punishment that we deserve, and who now intercedes as priest on our behalf with the Father. In Him, the charges against us have been satisfied. Justice has been done for our sins. So that we can ask, who is left to bring a charge? God's wrath has been spent on Christ for all those that will believe in Him. So then, which question is it that hangs over 
your head this morning? Is it who can stand when God marks your iniquities, when God levels your crimes against you, when he lists your sins? Who can stand or is it the question, who can bring a charge? If you have trusted in Christ, then there is no longer any condemnation for you. Yes, we still must seek Him. We still must strive to know Him. Yes, we must reject immorality. But the Lord's charge against you was nailed to the cross. And you bear it no more. But if you have not trusted in Christ, then your sins are even now marked against you. Even now, God's indictment is ready to be read against you to your condemnation. And you will not be able to stand on the day of judgment. I urge you this morning to repent of those sins. Trust in Christ and live then in faithful obedience to Him. We would love to talk to you about how you could do that. You can meet with myself or Bob or Tom or Steve. You can talk to Someone, your family, children, talk to your parents so that we can show you in scriptures how you can know Christ, how you can be forgiven, and how that charge, that indictment that the Lord has against you can be canceled by Christ's atoning work on the cross. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, this morning we are grateful for the opportunity to hear your word. Lord, in your word, you are revealed to us. And you are shown to be a God of mercy, a God of love, a God of compassion, of whom we are not worthy. God, you are majestic. You are glorious. And yet so often we trade these true and right images and descriptions of you for something that is false for something that diminishes and belittles your glory. Lord, I pray that you would fill our minds and hearts with a right knowledge of you, with a right understanding of who you are. Help us, Lord, to see you and to know you and to love you. Lord, for you have canceled the charges brought against us in Christ if we have believed in him. And so, Lord, we ask that you would go with us this week as we depart this place in a few minutes to live in that knowledge, to live in that light, to reject immorality, pursue a right knowledge of you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.